WDBM East Lansing. The Impact. And now, Impact Exposure. Exposure gives a voice to our community and provides a forum for discussing the relevant issues of today. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, this is Impact Exposure. From WDBM Impact 89 FM, this is Exposure, and I'm your host, Stephen Rich. Tonight on the show, we're going to explore the impact that a certain infamous book is having on young girls. We'll talk about bad bosses, explore Alzheimer's disease, and what some community leaders are doing to fight the disease, and address the growing issue of sexual assault on college campuses, and explore what MSU is doing to stop it. All this and more after the break. Again, I'm Stephen Rich, and this is Impact 89FM. You're listening to Exposure. There's been an intense debate surrounding the effects of violence and bad behavior in movies and video games, but for some reason or another, books seem to get a free pass. MSU professor Amy Bonomi has explored the relationship between a best-selling novel and the behavior of its young readers. She brought us her results. Can you tell us about where you, where you were educated, where you're from, and what brought you to MSU? So I have a master's in public health and a PhD in health services from University of Washington, uh, originally from Chicago, and I was recruited by Michigan State University last in August of 2013 to run the human development department. Awesome. So um, so your department is human development and family studies. That's For me, that's not really a, a title that I understand. So can you go through what sort of things you guys are looking at in your department? Absolutely. So we really look at any sort of developmental issue impacting infants, children, um, adults, and families across a lifespan. 
Um, so, for example, we look at uh, early childhood development, how infants learn to begin to communicate with parents, uh, caregivers, et cetera, all the way through old age and death. Gotcha. And so looking on your study, um, the negative impacts of one infamous book, it's looking at the negative impacts that one infamous book has had on young women readers. Do you mind telling us what book this is? That would be the Fifty Shades series, which is a, a blockbuster trilogy, uh, the fastest selling, fastest selling novel series in, in Western world history. Yeah. So Fifty Shades of Grey. So what brought you to that book? Why, why did you decide to look at that book's impact in particular? Well, I was teaching a graduate seminar in uh, romantic relationships and violence. And my students, as we were reviewing violence theories, kept saying, we need to apply these theories to Fifty Shades of Grey. Mm. So we decided to abandon the readings for the second half of the semester and instead apply those theories to Fifty Shades of Grey. So was it your students had been reading the book and kind of seeing these things in it and wanted to dive more into it? Absolutely. In <laughs> fact, they could not believe uh, the similarities that, that we're seeing and what we're studying and, and how violent impacts people in the real world and what they were reading in Fifty Shades. Mm, yeah, because the headline caught me in MSU Today, which is where I saw your guys' article. It, I mean, it's reading Fifty Shades of Grey linked to unhealthy behavior, which I thought was kind of funny <laughs> on first read. But it does sound like a serious issue if this kind of popular fiction is affecting young people in this way. And it's soon to be a movie. So it's, like you said, a huge hit. Um, so do you think where do you think this negative impact comes from? Is it the young women projecting themselves onto this character or why, why is it having this kind of effect? Well, it's a great question. So we didn't look at whether Fifty Shades caused unhealthy behaviors, um, but what we did so is correlations between uh, people who were reading the book, the types of characteristics that they exhibit uh, compared to non-readers. So really, um, if women experience the adverse health behaviors first, if they read Fifty Shades after that, it would essentially reaffirm their experiences. Mm. If they read Fifty Shades before experiencing the health behaviors, essentially Fifty Shades could create an underlying context for those behaviors to occur. Okay. So essentially, it would make women have, potentially have a hard time recognizing abuse in their own relationships when it's occurring. Um, yeah. So like you said, you're not proving if this book caused any, but um, kind of more that women who read it have that or are experiencing more of these type of things. Exactly. Okay. So women who read the book were much more likely to have a partner who was verbally abusive or who showed stalking tendencies, more likely to have disordered eating, more likely mm -hmm. to binge drink and have a high number of sexual partners compared to non-readers. So what do you do about this kind of problem? How can you address it and um, make young girls aware of it? Or how can you how can you correct something like that? So we're not suggesting that the book be banned or that women should not read Fifty Shades. However, it's important that women understand that the health behaviors assessed are known risk factors for violence in relationships. So we're really sort of talking about um, beginning with kids in a very young age, kids and young adults be taught to consume fiction and films and music with a critical lens. Um, likewise, parents and educators really can play a critical role in engaging kids in those conversations, really kind of recognizing uh, violence and abuse when it's occurring. We certainly have like R-rated features for films and things like that, but we don't have them for, for, for fiction. Mm. So, you know, this is something that we sort of implemented at a societal level. Mm. And so one thing I th uh, was thinking about when reading this, could you turn this into an opportunity for parents and for educators to kind of um, show for young women uh, kind of the effects an abusive relationship could have? Or, I mean, with any type of fiction, bad behavior, using it as an example of like, this is what can happen. Do you think this could be used as an opportunity for parents to create a conversation with their kids? Absolutely. This is an excellent opportunity to use uh, Fifty Shades, for example, and to, to initiate conversations with young people about what healthy sexuality is, what healthy body image is, what healthy relationships is, how you how you constructively resolve conflict in relationships. Mm. And um, are is there, in your opinion, is there any better popular fiction out there for young, young women? women and young men? 
That, I, I've not read much <laughs> literature for, for young people as of late, so I don't know that I have specific recommendations. Um, I do know that two very popular series, Fifty Shades of Grey and the Trilogy series, uh, did show these very violent patterns. Mm. And so analysts have essentially looked at that and said, those aren't maybe the most healthy things for young people to be reading. Uh, maybe we should consider something else. So it's just being aware of what is what that context is in the book, you know, what kind of things are showcased I, in it. And so, but talking about books, do you have any personal favorite books that you think are, are good for any kind of reader? <laughs> <laughs> I just moved from from Ohio and I unpacked all my books last night. So, uh, you know, I, I tend to be a fan of poetry. A lot mm. of the, the famous poets. I uh, was just looking at some of my Ray, Raymond Carver books. He's a, a very famous short story okay. writer. So uh, I think I have one of his, um, What We Talk About When We Talk About Love. Exactly. That's a good one. Yep, yep. <laughs> So. Well, awesome. Well, thank you so much for talking with us. Again, we've been talking with Amy Bonomi. Bonomi. Amy, Amy Bonomi. We've been talking with Amy Bonomi, who's a professor and chair in the Department of Human Development and Family Studies at MSU. So thank you. Thank you. I want to share your mouthful. I want to do all the things your lungs do so well I'm gonna bed into you like a cat bats into a female Turn you inside out and lick you like a crisp packet listening to WDBM Impact 89FM, and this is Exposure. I'm your host, Stephen Rich. If going to work today isn't hard enough, an abusive supervisor can be the cherry on top of the garbage cake. But it's not new information that a bad boss can really ruin a job. Just look at the movies, everything from The Devil Wears Prada to Office Space and Horrible Bosses. But Crystal Farr of the Department of Management explored just how toxic an abusive supervisor can actually be. Um, I came to MSU because um, it may not be known to many, but MSU actually is a hub for uh, very cool teams and leadership research. We do mm -hmm. have a teams lab in the management department of the business school, and that was hugely attractive to me. I, I'm a teams researcher. I study what uh, leaders and members' interactions are like and what consequences they have for the people in the team, but also how the team performs. So coming to MSU was kind of a dream for me because I knew I was going to be able to do really cool research here um, with the facilities and obviously the other faculty in the department are wonderful as well. So, mm -hmm. And then just a little bit of background on yourself. Where, where did you get your education? Yeah, so I did my undergrad in psychology at Harvard mm -hmm. and then um, 
between that and doing grad school, I did Teach for America for two years in California, oh, cool. and then um, moved out to the University of Maryland um, for my PhD in organizational behavior. Very cool. Yeah. Um, and so the the reason we brought you in is because we just saw an article on your research of the effect of non physical abuse by a boss or supervisor. So just first, what what sparked your interest in this, in studying this kind of uh, behavior in the work environment? Yeah, I think that's a great question. Um, You know, something about negative events does draw people to them uh, in the sense that they are sort of shocking, um, both for the individual who experiences it, but also for those who observe it. And Mm -hmm. that of course, as researchers, we're no exception. So when we see really negative things happening in organizations, we got to know why they happen, what impact they have on people, what does it mean in terms of productivity. Um, so, so that's certainly part of the appeal. The other appeal um, is that there are so many individuals who report having abusive bosses at mm-hmm. one point in time. And I'll define abuse um, for you. So here we're talking about non-physical abuse um, tends to revolve around sort of verbal um, acts of um, ridicule. It could be undermining somebody. It could be uh, questioning their competence, um, you know, throwing them under the bus, mm. taking credit for their things, um, you know, just nasty behaviors yeah. <laughs> that you can see someone in power doing to someone else um, because they can. And so uh, that's what we refer to here as abusive supervision. And when you guys did the research, did you have like a checklist of like abusive behavior? Or how did you determine if someone was like abusive? Was it like to an extent or how did you gauge that? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, this scale for abusive supervision was uh, based off of research that was done in 2000 by um, a professor named Bennett Tepper. He's currently now at the Ohio State University. Mm-hmm. Um, but when he developed the scale, he did interview a number of people um, just on you know what kind of behaviors they would consider abusive um, from their bosses. And so there was kind of like a checklist, like you're mm-hmm. suggesting. I think there's like 15 items on there. So there are other things like giving me the silent treatment or not letting me interact <laughs> with other people in my team. So it's quite varied in terms of the behaviors. Um, and so the idea is that there's these 15 items in this paper we use 10 um, and then when individuals indicate whether or not they've been ex- exposed to this they'll indicate to what extent oh, okay so it might be the case that the boss ridicules me but they don't give me the silent treatment but they do take credit for my ideas but they don't embarrass me in front of other people so and then so it's sort of like one it never happens to five this happens all the time uh, on these uh, various dimensions so of course the more of these uh, items someone says they experience much of it um, they would be considered having a highly abusive boss Mm -hmm. and then so moving into the actual research uh, now that we know the the range of how you uh, decided on what was abusive i understand that you conducted your research in china and in the u.s and they were two different studies can you just explain just briefly how you conducted both of those? Yeah, absolutely. So the field study, so so here's the thing with our research, it's impossible to get at every single thing you want to in a single study. And and, and oftentimes that's just because of limitations with um, the participants that you have. Um, and so, you know, oftentimes what's best is when you can do a look at the same phenomenon in two different ways, like in two different studies, mm-hmm. in two different sites, um, using different methods. So that's sort of the idea behind, you know, why we decided to do one study um, in the field in China and then one study in the lab actually here at MSU. It doesn't say that in the paper, but that's where it was it done. Was here. <laughs> 
with our dear undergrads. Um, and so the reason is because, um, you know, we wanted to understand whether or not this phenomenon actually happened in real teams, right? So we wanted to go to real organizations with people in real teams, with real leaders who are actually saying that they experienced abuse um, and see what would happen. So so that was the idea of going to China. There was a number of firms who were willing to participate. Um, we told them it was a survey about leadership and teamwork and team behaviors. It's very general because certainly in our sample, we have both abusive and non-abusive leaders, right? Mm-hmm. So it wasn't like we just wanted abusive people. Um, and so those um, organizations and teams willing to participate, they would fill out a survey for us, and the team members would report on how much they experienced abusive supervision at the hands of their team leader. Um, and then the team members would then report on how much they, um, how much relationship conflict they experienced as a team. Uh, they also reported, I think, on their own sort of self-esteem in the group. And then ultimately, the leader reported on how much um, each subordinate or each member of the team was speaking up or offering contributions to the mm-hmm. team. So those are, I mean, I, I know I'm sort of overstepping in the sense that we haven't talked about the results yet, but those are sort of yeah. the major players um, in the field study. And then uh, we try to do something similar here in the lab, although this wasn't in, among real teams and real organizations and real leaders, we did create scenarios um, where someone would be in a team where either they themselves or other members of the team were being abused, and then they would be asked how they would respond to that situation. Mm. So still trying to get the same phenomenon, but in two very different ways. One um, benefit of doing the field study is now we show this is a true phenomenon that actually happens to real people. In the lab, we're saying, you know, even if we were to manipulate these things, we would still get the same effect uh, so the in lab a controlled really, environment. Yeah, it allows you to kind of enhance it and see how exactly. much it affects the group. And so was it, exactly. help me understand the lab study a little bit better. Was it um, like a survey kind of thing or was it putting people in actual groups and observing them, yeah. someone being abusive? Yeah, exactly. So it was a survey. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what we did was we had them read. So we gave them a scenario, you know, you're part of this team, you're part of a task force in your university, um, you have this team leader his name is his her name is jp we didn't actually specify the gender of anyone on the team um and so we told them that you know this is how things are going with this project um you got this email from your leader you got this email from your team members and then we would manipulate the extent of the abusive behavior in those emails so the Mm -hmm. email would say something like you're stupid i find your ideas really worthless um, you know, like you're a real embarrassment to this group <laughs> in this town or whatever. And so, um, you know, and they would get exposed, they would read these emails and they were asked to pretend like they were actually in this situation. And then, so then they would respond to questions. So, okay. you know, like, how do you feel about other people in your team? Mm-hmm. How, how willing are you to contribute in these ways to your team? Gotcha. And so, uh, I understand you guys did it in a couple different industries in your field research. Did you find it varying at all between different industries of how much abuse there is in different industries? Or is this kind of more of a a universal find that you did with your research? Yeah, that's a great question. So we did look at that. Um, We had different types of firms and different functions of the teams. We did control for those things. I guess our research question was not so much about you know, is there differences across different types of groups mm. or, or industries? Just more generally the More general, of- but that the key is that even after controlling for any variance due to those differences, we found the same effects unchanged. Um, so that would indicate to me that, yes, there's likely variation across, you know, functions or industries, but ultimately the the heart of the matter is that when you do have an abusive leader, these are the types of things that happen. Mm. And, and to add to that, I mean, we did this study in China, but... Actually, um, a number of abusive supervision 
uh, studies have been done in the U.S. too, and they've shown similar effects, although no one's really studied it in sort of teams and, you know, the effects on the team, uh, which is kind of the new contribution of this particular study. But um, previous research that had been looking at abusive supervision and its effects on individuals has shown that regardless of culture and, uh, you know, country or industry or function or organization, the effects are just as toxic. Mm. So um, I, I wouldn't expect the results to change too much uh, mm. on account of, you know, idiosyncratic um aspects of our sample. Mm -hmm. Well, speaking of the results, diving into them, um, you mentioned they, it does create this kind of toxic environment. Can you explain how how toxic it is, how toxic it is, how it affects each uh, individual team member? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So um, the cool thing about studying abusive supervision teams is that there's inevitably going to be people who are more abused than others, right? Mm -hmm. So some people will experience more of it and others will not. And so the beauty of kind of studying it in this context is to see, okay, so what happens to everyone? I mean, what happens to the people who are targeted for abuse? What happens to the people who are, aren't targeted, so they're spared, are they still involved in these sort of toxic consequences, if you will? And so, uh, you know, the idea is that if you are in a team, you know, no one is truly spared because something like a toxic leader or an abusive leader, that's a kind of contextual influence that will sort of spread to influence everyone. Mm. Um, so anyway, the findings of the study, I guess there are kind of two major, well, three major findings. The first major finding is that if you are in a team and you're individually abused, so you you say you experience abuse targeted towards yourself. Um, you actually suffer lower self-esteem in the group. So mm -hmm. that's not general like, oh, I'm a worthless person, but like I actually feel worthless in this group. Mm. Um, and that uh, sort of state of mind and self-concept ultimately reduces the amount of contributions you make to the team. So that's one sort of negative effect, and it's not too surprising. Um the second effect that we found is that when you have an abusive leader and there's enough members of the team reporting that this leader is abusive towards them, you start, you start to get beyond individuals and it starts to infect the entire context. And so what we find is that when um, abusive leadership is higher in the team in general, um, the team starts to experience more relationship conflict. And I'll define that relationship conflict is when members experience hostilities towards each other. There's sort of tensions, negative emotions. They're rude to each other. And even so it's aggression. not even with the management. It's just within the group exactly. itself. Exactly. Mm -hmm. It's within the group itself. Exactly. So, um, you know, and, and that uh, makes for a hostile climate for everyone and everyone's kind of involved in it. And you know how these things can go. They sort of spiral. So yeah. even people who aren't immediately initiating these sort of aggressive behaviors, uh, they do eventually become involved. And so, um, you know, what it creates is a toxic environment that ultimately uh, is very demotivating for everyone in the team, uh, regardless of whether they were abused or not. And what that does is that also reduces people's contributions to the team. So mm -hmm. you have individuals feeling, um, you know, lower about their self-concept in the team, and you have the entire team becoming a demotivating, sort of toxic, relational context. And both of those things are making people less likely to contribute to the team. So, Which I imagine that then leads into less work and then more unhappiness exactly. with the work. So it just keeps spiraling. Exactly. It is a negative spiral. And one of the things that we talk about in the article is that we think this happens because of social learning. So when, when we came into the this idea of studying abusive supervision in teams, we had thought that, okay, um, you know, if I'm abused as an individual and I'm isolated, you know, there's not very much that I can do. But if I'm with a team of other people and a number of us experience the same thing and we're dissatisfied with our boss, 
you know, we should band together and support each other and find ways to be resilient together uh, in the face of a common enemy. Um, We didn't find that. So what's happening really is that we have an abusive leader and now we all are aggressive towards each other because we we are unhappy with our own experiences. If we're personally abused, yeah, we call it displaced aggression. But the other part of it is that we do learn positive and negative behaviors from our leaders. Um, and it's just an inevitable thing that happens, a psychological sort of mechanism. And so when our leader is abusive and devalues others in the team, we also learn those behaviors and we start to direct it towards others as well, which I think is what causes um, this team relationship conflict and um, sort of this toxicity starts to spread and infect everyone. And do you think if someone were to be in an abusive work environment and say leave the company or go to a different, uh, I don't know, department or something that is a more healthy department, even not being the leader, do you think they could be kind of a poison to that uh, to a healthy environment? Yeah, that is really interesting. So I don't think anyone has studied that, this idea that, you know, if you leave a particular group and you go to another one, do you take those negative experiences or ways of interacting with others with you? Um, I do think that people do learn from their past experiences and it does imprint them in some ways. And, um, you know, certainly they take with them the the trauma of that and they might be more wary, I think, or suspicious of other members. Not I don't as know. trusting as... Yeah, like, you know, kind of waiting for the ax to fall, if you will, and, and even if it never does. And so I think I think that's certainly valid. Um, I think if we were to show that, that would be even more disturbing <laughs> because it's, you know, one of the things that we're finding is that um, there's actually very little things, very few things that an individual can do uh, once they're in abusive supervision, uh, su- abusive supervision situation. And, um, you know, employees do leave uh, with the hope of escaping it. But to f- to if we were to find that actually these sort of negative effects actually follow them out, and it's not necessarily because of a present threat, it's just something psychological that, you know, this like paranoia or rumination that follows them to another setting and therefore sets them up for failure, I think that would be astoundingly bad. <laughs> Well, I was going to ask you for if you had any advice for someone stuck in a bad work environment, but it sounds like you don't have much. Well, okay, so a couple <laughs> things, right? Um, yeah, I have thought about this because, like, this is very depressing, and it's like I got no practical implications here. Um, one is that you know we now that we know a little bit more about why abusive supervision is so toxic, like not only to the individual but the context, um, we can start thinking about ways you can counteract it, right? So, for example, feeling like your self esteem is lower in the group. Yes, that happens when you have an abusive boss, but self-esteem is made of many things, right? So you can, if you can somehow compensate for the loss of self-esteem effect, uh, uh, you know, due to an abusive boss, perhaps by, you know, either telling yourself that you're fine or having, you know, other people remind you that you do good work or whatever, maybe, maybe, I don't know, we haven't found it yet, but mm-hmm. maybe you can counteract some of those negative influences. And, and same thing at the team level, if you have, you know, a team that's descending into relationship conflict, you know, realizing that this is naturally happening, um, perhaps individuals can sort of take a stand and try to find ways to foster more harmonious, positive interpersonal relationships in, in you know, against the flow of this sort of spiraling toxicity. Um, but I think the implications are actually larger for external managers. Mm-hmm. So especially if you see that someone... Um, under you, say the team leader is is actually being abusive towards their members. Um, I think you just have to realize that it's not um, 
it's the consequences are no longer isolated to specific individuals or targeted individuals. Now it's sort of it's going to affect your entire system, mm-hmm. um, the entire team. And so as a manager, if I see this, you know, it kind of reinforces, well, I really need to have a zero tolerance policy towards abuse because this is much worse in the, in the implications um, for members' contributions and potential productivity are actually much larger than we would have expected. Um, and so, so sort of realizing that and then taking actions to sort of restore people's self-esteem or, you know, like making the team to be more harmonious. I think these are worthwhile steps that managers can take as well. Mm-hmm. And so before we go, I just want to ask you if you have any personal uh, bad working environment experiences that you could tell us about. <laughs> yeah, I personally have not. Um, and I am thankful for that. Actually, all the... <clears throat> during my time at Harvard when I was a research assistant and also during Teach for America, you know, honestly, I felt more abused by my students than I did by my <laughs> own administrators. So, uh, yeah, that's a story for another day. Um, I personally have fortunately not been in that situation just yet. So, um, you know, that said, though, I have observed it. And, you know, obviously my friends will tell me about it as well. I think in general, it's a lot easier to be on the outside looking in than the person in the situation. I find that the most uh you know, the people that I think are the strongest and most resilient individuals suddenly in that situation appear to be powerless. And I think that is that is something we have to grapple with, at, you know, as as people who study or in organizations. And you just have to realize that, you know, you really when you have an abusive supervisor around, it just really does take take a toll on everyone so Mm -hmm. yeah and I actually I did have my first job was a bad working environment I was working at a fast food place and our boss was just very (laughs) power trip like very just authoritative and I was reading through the the study and just time and time again I was like that that was my that was my boss right yeah yeah exactly and I think you know one thing about this type of research I, I think the reason why it resonates with so many is because you know oftentimes we don't we don't have solutions like mm-hmm. if you look at my study I don't say like okay this is exactly what you can do to sort of counteract this um, but somehow like just uh, having a model there and showing okay like with science this is what happens you know somehow psychologically gives people peace even if especially if they've been through the situation Mm -hmm. they're like yes that validates my experiences (laughs) or I know exactly what this is and and somehow you know being able to help people make sense of the situation alone um, can be very powerful Um, we've been talking with Crystal Farr who's an assistant professor of management in the Eli Broad College of Business so thank you so much for being with us thank you so much Steve
You're listening to WDBM Impact 89FM. This is Exposure, and I'm your host, Stephen Rich. In 15 minutes, we'll explore how MSU is trying to address the issue of sexual assault in college. But first, more than half of Americans know someone affected by Alzheimer's, and one group is trying to work hard to find a cure for this disease. We spoke with Lindsay Brisky, the Director of Public Policy for the Alzheimer's Association Michigan Chapter. I have always been really passionate about helping older people. Um, My grandmother kind of inspired me. And so I loved uh, coming to the Alzheimer's Association and being able to help older people, but on such a grand scale in public policy. We have an opportunity to influence the lives of millions of people, both now and in the future, that will be affected by this disease. Gotcha. So um, and how long ago did you first get involved with? Um, I've been with the Alzheimer's Association for about a year and have worked in the aging network um, for over 10 years. Mm-hmm. And public policy, obviously, I imagine you're working a lot with um, the state government and the national government to advocate for the organization, but could you just give us a little bit of breakdown about what you specifically do? Sure. So with Alzheimer's disease, it is the only disease in the top 10 causes of death that currently has no cure, no treatment, and no way to slow its progression. And it is the sixth leading cause of death in the United States. So we have a real crisis on hand right now because we need to find a cure and we need to find a treatment for this disease. And it's also affecting over 5 million Americans. Every 67 seconds, someone is diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. Wow. So it is really just a very national um, problem. And Absolutely. so you said you had been personally affected by, by the disease, correct? Um, my grandfather had dementia, mm. which is um, a type of Alzheimer's. Uh, dementia is the umbrella term and Alzheimer's is a specific disease. Okay, got it. Um, and so I imagine, you know, dealing with that was um, very difficult. And so I, did that help inspire you to pursue a career in advocacy for Alzheimer's? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Alzheimer's disease is a devastating disease because Mm. it takes the person that you love away from you before they're gone. They slowly lose their memory, their cognition, their ability to think, and then their brain starts to tell the rest of their body to stop working. Mm. So Alzheimer's disease is a fatal disease and it will slowly take someone's life. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's really hard to see that person that you love kind of diminish in front of you. Mm And um, back to kind of your work at, in advocacy, are you more advocating for more funding for Alzheimer's, trying to get just raise awareness among people of how much of a range it affects? Or what would you say is the biggest goal in advocacy? Um, well, we work both in state and federal advocacy, but more than anything, there's a huge gap in awareness about this disease. Mm. People don't know that Alzheimer's is fatal. They don't know that it's not a normal part of aging. And they don't know that it's affecting more and more Americans every day. Mm -hmm. So our biggest um, challenge right now is to really educate the public about this disease and that it could affect anyone. We don't know what causes it. So anyone with a brain is at risk for Alzheimer's disease. Mm -hmm. And so one way you guys are raising awareness um, is the Lansing Walk to End Alzheimer's. And that's part of the reason that we wanted to bring you in is to talk a little bit about that. So um, do, you, do you mind just giving a quick kind of overview of what, what the Lansing Walk is trying to do here in Lansing? Sure, absolutely. The Lansing Walk to End Alzheimer's is really an opportunity to bring people together that want to end Alzheimer's. They either have been personally affected as a caregiver or a professional in the field, or they're people that have not yet been affected 
but don't want to be. They don't want to see their loved ones have to deal with this disease and have to become caregivers. Um, so we have several hundred people will gather at the Capitol, and they will raise funds and raise awareness for this disease. Um, bringing people together, we all network. You learn about opportunities to get involved and how you can share about Alzheimer's disease in your own network. Um, the Alzheimer's Association's Walk to End Alzheimer's is also an opportunity for people to uh, to grieve a loss and to also kind of move forward and to find hope. Mm-hmm. Um, this disease is really devastating, but when you know that you're not alone, it really provides hope. Mm-hmm. And another thing that you guys um, have described the event as is um, you've described it as an exper- experience for participants to learn more about Alzheimer's, get involved with its critical case, critical cause advocacy opportunities, the latest in Alzheimer's research and clinical trial enrollment to support groups and services. So do you provide a lot of information for attendees while they're there? Are there any kind of educational things that you're promoting going forward from there? Absolutely. Um, at the walk, we have a table for our programs and services, and we'll have information about all of the different programs we do. We do a lot of things in the community so you can learn more about the disease, how to talk to someone that's going through this, how to cope with all of the emotions. Uh, We'll have information about our support groups. And we also have information about clinical trials, which is a really exciting part of our work. Uh, Right now, we need both healthy brains and people affected by the disease to be a part of clinical trials. And so you can sign up at the walk to um, to be a part of a trial for Alzheimer's disease to find a cure. So a clinical trial is where someone who's healthy comes in and they study their brain? or Yes, essentially. There's a lot of variety in clinical trials. Mm. It could be anything from someone taking um, a computer game and they're watching your brain. A scientist is looking at how your brain's functioning during that. Mm-hmm. Or it could be doing MRI scans. And that could be both on a healthy person and a person that's having some cognition issues. Mm-hmm. So we need people to participate on both sides. And this is really um, one way that we can provide hope for a cure is to continue studying this disease. Mm-hmm. So um, at the walk, you can sign up to be a part of clinical trials. And if you are a candidate for one of the trials in your areas, we will contact you and, and get you involved that way. So our, our 1-800 number, we have a 24-7 helpline for families that have been affected by this disease. It's also available for professionals that have a question. Um, and it's also a way to get connected to any of our programs and services or to clinical trials or advocacy or volunteer opportunities. You can call that line. We'll direct you to the local number and give you a lot more information. So I just want to put that phone number out. It's 1-800-272-3900. Mm-hmm. And that's like a, is that like a national thing that'll then direct you to? Okay, yep. got it. Based on your area code, it'll direct you to the local office. So if you're calling with a 517 area code, you'll get directed right here to Lansing office. Mm-hmm. And uh, for people looking to go to the event, it starts at the Capitol building, correct? Yes, it does. It's right on the Capitol lawn. Um, we'll have tables set up. There's a lot of different opportunities to get involved. And you'll see a lot of people wearing purple, getting excited on the mm-hmm. Capitol lawn. Very cool. And do you guys have anything planned for before or after the walk for participants? There will be music down at the Capitol also. Um, and there is what we call Shop for a Cause. Mm-hmm. So there is a booth where you can buy purple things, some of them handmade, some of them not handmade, but all sorts of things that you can purchase that, again, support the cause of a world without Alzheimer's. Mm-hmm. Very cool. And so before we go, um, what do you think 
makes Alzheimer's such, I think you've touched on this before, but just kind of to wrap it up, um, what do you think makes Alzheimer's such an important disease to focus a lot of attention on? Alzheimer's disease is is a crisis right now, uh, affecting over 5 million Americans, over 170,000 people in Michigan, and there are over 15 million unpaid caregivers in our country caring for someone with Alzheimer's disease. It is absolutely a crisis, and it is absolutely something that we have to find a cure for. We also have to support people today. Mm-hmm. So Alzheimer's is something that we can't wait. We have to do it now. Um, and being part of the Walk to End Alzheimer's is a great opportunity to provide hope and to um, help us to find a cure for this terrible, terrible disease. Mm-hmm. Um, well, we've been talking with Lindsay Briskke, who is the Director of Public Policy for the Alzheimer's Association Michigan Chapter. And uh, just a reminder, the Lansing Walk to End Alzheimer's is at the state capitol on Sunday, September 14th, starting at 1 p.m. The registration starts at 11. And we'll link to all that info on our website, impact89fm.org. So thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, thank you. You're listening to Impact Exposure. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, Primetime, where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Monday nights from 8 till 10, the Asian Invasion brings you the music from the rising sun. We'll bring you the latest pop, indie, rock, and electro from Korea, Japan, and China. Only on Impact 89 FM. An ordinary day, an ordinary family's living room filled with an ordinary bunch of kids, and they were doing nothing, when suddenly... That's a personal foul, an active activity on a sunny day. Coming to the rescue was NFL running back Reggie Bush. Let's play. And play they did. There was running and jumping, and laziness was crushed. Hey kids, don't get a lazy penalty. Go online to smallstep.gov for fun playtime ideas. So you can be a player too. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Attention shoppers, if anyone is missing a rather plump set of love handles, please come to the customer service counter and claim them. The ample love handles were lost in the produce department where their former owner had purchased fruits and veggies to munch on during the big game. Thank you and have a good day. Small step number 81, snack on fruits and veggies. It's just one of the many small steps you can take to get healthy. Learn more at www.smallstep.gov. A public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Now back to Impact Exposure. This is WDBM Impact 89 FM, and you're listening to Exposure with me, your host, Stephen Rich. Sexual assault and rape have become a growing concern for both students and administration on college campuses. Recently, President Simon released a statement on MSU's plan to tackle this problem. Kara Stevenson of the MSU Sexual Assault Crisis Intervention Team, better known as SASE, came to the studio to break down just how large this issue is. Hi, so I'm Kira Stevenson. I'm a senior here at Michigan State University studying comparative cultures and politics, French and Arabic. And I'm really interested in studying the way that different cultures affect how we can access services and resources. So lately, I've been really interested in public health and specifically reproductive health, women's rights. And that's how I really got involved with SASE. And so did you get involved with SASE when you first got here at MSU or what year did you get involved with them? I got involved my sophomore year. So this will be my third year with the organization. And you started as volunteering before. How, what was it? How did you get to become the president? Yeah, so I started my first year just as a volunteer. I really found it to be a really meaningful organization and wanted to get more involved. So last year I was the vice president and then this year I'm starting as president. Awesome. So let's just learn a little bit more, more about SASE. So what would you describe as the major goals of your organization? Yeah, so really our goal is to advocate for 
survivors of sexual assault. And we do that in a variety of ways. So we have a 24-hour hotline, which any student on campus, if they go into their public bathroom, they probably see a hotline number. We're the people who are going to answer that. And that's for crisis intervention. If somebody just has a question about resources or just needs someone to talk to, our volunteers are the ones who are talking to them. Mm -hmm. We also provide medical advocacy. So if someone goes to the hospital to undergo a forensic exam, We'll go and support them, answer any questions, be sort of an advocate for them during that exam, as well as offer resources. And we do a variety of community outreach events as well. So different organizations maybe want us to come in and talk about consent or sexual assault dynamics or resources on campus. And we're really there to do that. Mm -hmm. So you guys are definitely very busy year round. (laughs) Indeed. (laughs) And how many volunteers would you say that you usually have? We have about 100 volunteers. We're a pretty big organization. We not only have volunteers on campus, but we're also open to community volunteers. So we really span a pretty wide array of people. Mm -hmm. Well, that's really great to hear because one of the reasons that we wanted to speak with you guys is um, not so great news about MSU. Um, We're one of 70 universities that have been investigated by the U.S. Office of Civil Rights. And recently, President Simon responded to um, the campus uh, investigation. So we just wanted to explore her response and what you guys think and um, where do we go from here. So do we know at all or do you guys know at all what sparked the investigation here or even nationwide? So we're not really at liberty to talk about the investigation just because we want to protect our clients and their confidentiality. Mm-hmm. Um, But in terms of nationwide, I think it's just about campuses not really responding to students saying that this is a problem and we need to better handle it. Mm -hmm. And in President Simon's response to the students and alumni, she emailed um, everyone connected with MSU, letting them know about different things that we're doing to enhance um, providing services for students who are assaulted. And one of the things she talked about is MSU Safe Place Program, which is celebrating its 20th year here in October, as well as enhancing the enhancing the University Task Force on Sexual Assault and Relationship Violence, as well and receiving government guidance on these issues. So she is trying a lot of different um, areas. Do you believe that this response is adequate? for the to um, you know address these issues so I think that she does a couple of really great things in her response first kind of what you alluded to pointing out some of the excellent resources we already have on campus MSU is the only university in the country to have an on-campus domestic violence shelter which is MSU safe place Mm -hmm. and that's really great and kind of indicates that for a while we've been trying to take steps to remedy this problem as well as we have you know, MSU SARV, the Sexual Assault and Relationship Violence Prevention Program for freshmen. That's a program that now they're trying to implement nationwide. But we've had it, this is going to be our seventh year of the program. So things like that kind of indicate the institutional response we already have. She also highlights things like the necessity of bystander intervention and a more widespread dialogue on campus. And I think that's something that our organization is really passionate about, getting people to recognize that this is an issue and we do need to talk about it, even if it's not easy. I think it's kind of hard for someone in her position necessarily to delve into every single thing that we can do. And that's why it's important to have organizations like SASE who are on the ground, comprised of students and community members who can kind of help to realize that action. Because yes, we do need an institutional response, but sexual assault isn't only a problem because of institutional failures. It's a problem because of our culture and the way that we envision consent and dynamics around violence. And so it can't just happen from the top. It really needs to happen from students as well. Mm-hmm. But do you think there's any um, surrounding issues that you would have se- liked to see her address more directly in her response? I think for us, it's nice to see the president come out strongly against this issue and highlight that it is important. I think, you know, the biggest frustrations that I have 
aren't necessarily things that happen with the university, but more things that I observe in my everyday life with fellow students. I will say that it's kind of difficult for institutions who are trying to follow federal guidelines at the same time as maybe having to deal with criminal guidelines or things like that. So it's a problem that campuses want a really quick response to, but there are a lot of competing voices telling them how to deal with it. And I think, you know, on a national level, having a conversation about how do we streamline this process so people who are survivors of sexual assault see justice in a timely manner, that's really important. But I think that right now it's kind of difficult to know how to realize that. So it's good to see that this is something that's getting national attention from the vice president, from the president. It's really big in political discourse, but I hope that we can see more you know, concrete processes that are emerging because I think that campuses are just really beginning to grapple with the severity of this problem. And so streamlining is necessary. Mm-hmm. And like you said, more moving beyond from talking about the problem to addressing it. Yeah, and I think that happens, like I mentioned earlier, not only from the institution, but also from people getting more involved, being more vocal about this issue. If you witness something that's not okay, stepping forward and saying that's not okay. Mm-hmm. And another issue that I want to talk with about with sexual assault on campus um, that actually, like you mentioned, the, the uh, federal government did a report on it. And the White House quoted a report saying that only 2% of um, incapacitated sexual assaults are reported and only 13% of cases of force, forcible rape on campus are reported. Um, can you just help us understand what is the reasons for this, such a large amount of underreporting on campus and what we can do to combat, combat that? Yeah, so I think reason number one is there's a big stigma against sexual assault and people who are survivors of sexual assault. Our culture always tends to blame the victim. Look for, you know, why was she wearing that? Why was he acting like that? You know, why were they drinking so much? Things like this. But at the end of the day, nothing that a person does justifies violence being done against them. Mm -hmm. And I think the biggest thing is people are afraid to come forward because they think that they're going to be the one who's going to be scrutinized, not the person who committed violence against them. And that's something that we really try to work on when we're educating people is this sort of stigma. There's also definitely issues around alcohol when you talk about incapacitation. Not only may someone not really remember precisely what happened to them, but they may think that, oh, because I was drinking that means that it's my fault. And one of the messages that we always try to get across to people is that it is never your fault, regardless of the circumstances. But I think stigma is the biggest reason why we're not seeing people come forward. And also you have to consider that You know, there's a lot that's asked of people who do come forward. Going through the criminal process is not easy. Mm -hmm. It requires you to tell your story repeatedly in front of various audiences of varying sympathies and kind of go through the trauma that already happened to you. And we also like to try to tell people that, yes, it's important to report if you feel that that's right for you. But it's also important to remember that the decision to report is the survivor's choice. And when violence is done against someone, that's kind of a way of their power being taken away from them. So we like to say that, you know, any chance that you have to sort of restore that power, give people the agency to make their own choices, that's important. And so when we talk about these figures, it's so important to realize, yes, this is a big problem, but also not to try to prescribe what the appropriate actions for survivors are, because that is their choice with the resources available to them. Mm -hmm. And going back to um, what you're talking about with just the long process after they report it, do do you guys personally have any um, ways to comfort people who are going through that process? Or are there any any resources available to someone who is going through the legal process after an assault? Yeah, so 
on campus, we do provide legal and judicial advocacy. So if someone's going through the criminal proceedings, we'll definitely have someone who will go and, you know, sit in the courtroom with them or provide support. And if they're going through on-campus proceedings, we also provide that sort of advocacy as well. And then it's also, you know, about looking to things like hotlines, but also personal support networks. And that's why we really try to emphasize you know, being supportive to the people around you because we can provide as much support as we would like and we will always be there for our survivors. But it's also important that the people in their lives who they know are the ones who are supporting them as well. And that's why we really push this sort of education to understand, you know, it's not someone's fault. It's your role to support them. It's not your role to dictate what they should do and really be there for them through this kind of difficult process. Mm -hmm. And uh, talking a little bit about education, you mentioned SARV earlier. Do you mind breaking that down a little bit, what SARV actually, or what students must do to go through the SARV education? Yeah, so SARV is our freshman educational program. And it's basically a one and a half to two hour workshop that all of our freshmen are required to go through. And so the first half of the workshop is really just talking about you know, the dynamics of sexual assault and relationship violence, where we see it, what, you know, those terms mean, what's considered that, because a lot of that can be kind of abstract. These terms are thrown around a lot. And so really trying to concretize for our freshmen, you know, this is what's considered not okay. And if this is a situation that you're in or that you're witnessing, you should feel free to say this is not okay. And then the second half of the workshop, we sort of split up into people who identify as female and people who identify as male and go through those sorts of gender-specific workshops to kind of talk about the specific way those issues affect us as females or as males. And in that side of the workshop, we really focus on bystander intervention. And if you're witnessing a situation, what are techniques that you could use that are comfortable for your personality? Because not everyone is assertive enough to just go up to someone and say, that's not okay. Mm -hmm. So it's a lot about brainstorming, you know, what can you do in any situation to make things a more safe and supportive community for your fellow Spartans? Mm-hmm. And do you think, uh, this is just a, a kind of a personal opinion, but do you think college is um, the best time to start to start teaching someone about sexual assault? Or do you think people need to understand that more coming in? Would you like to see more education earlier about that? Definitely earlier. I mean, the most vulnerable time for people in college is during their freshman year and during you know the first times that they're on campus. And we do try to educate every freshman during their first semester, but sometimes that can be too late. And mm-hmm. this is a conversation that I think needs to happen, you know, in high school, in middle school. It's around us all the time. You know, it's increasingly in our newspapers. And the more that we can talk to our kids and to our teenagers about the fact that this is a problem and what does it mean to be in a healthy relationship? What does it mean to be in an unhealthy relationship? That's kind of hard to figure out for yourself when you're 15 or 16. Mm -hmm. And the more that we can have a conversation about this, I think the safer our culture will be and that will translate into the college experience. So it's so important to have this conversation in college, not only your freshman year, but as you move through the university. But the earlier it can happen, I definitely believe the better. Mm-hmm. And we do have to start wrapping things up. But before we go, I just did, wanted to leave us with a couple of uh, just quick st- statistics. Um, one of them comes back from the White House report. They quoted that one in five women are sexually assaulted in college. And on your, your guys' website, SASE, your organization states that one in three women and one in six men will experience some 
some form of sexual assault before reach, reaching the age of 18. So just to wrap things up, um, how do you think we can address such a prevalent issue at such a large interview, inter, excuse me, at such a large university? What, what do we need to do to go forward from here? Yeah, I think that there are a couple of steps that we can take. First of all, it is just about acknowledging that this is a problem that affects way more people than we think mm -hmm. and recognizing that in any particular audience you're in, someone might be affected. So thinking about the way that you talk, thinking about the way that you're conducting yourself and thinking about how your actions you know, could be implicated in this phenomena. Also, things like bystander intervention, you know, when you're at a party, is everyone okay? Is everyone really consenting to what's happening to them? You know, even with friends, things like that, advocating for your friends and watching out for even people that you don't know is so important. And then also, you know, if you are interested in taking more concrete actions, you know, in your daily life against this, there are a lot of great organizations on campus who are working towards this issue. You know, obviously, SASE is really passionate about this. And just a quick plug, if you are interested in SASE, we will be having an info meeting coming up for our fall training session on September 24th at 5 p.m. in room six of the Student Services Building. And any applications would be due Monday, September 29th by 5 p.m. But we're not the only people who are working on this issue. You know, you have the SARV program, which any student can apply at the end of the year to be an educator next year, looking at things like Compass, which is an organization that works, you know, from a male perspective as males standing out against this issue. There's so much activism on campus that you can be a part of if that's something that you're interested in. And even if you're not on campus, you know, community organizations that are passionate about this. So kind of tapping into those community resources to provide support. So it's not only about preventing things through education and bystander intervention, but also, you know, after this stuff happens, how can we best support people? How can you be most supportive? Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much for talking with us and just helping us um, understand some of these issues a little bit better. And we've been talking with uh, Kira Stevenson, who is the president of MSU, the MSU Sexual Assault Crisis Team, better known as SASE. So thank you so much for being with us. And we will link to their website on our website, which is impact89fm.org. Thank, thank you so for much. having me. was a dream I had it too You could see it coming true It would travel in the air You could make it but now the sun goes down over Dolly Parton Bridge The one time home soul takes our country's final breath I guess it takes Such a fight Graceland Is a ghost town Tonight Graceland 
trip with my son. There's no guitar shines in the sun. Those days are gone. Thank you for joining us tonight. Special thanks to station manager Gabriela Saldivia and general manager Ed Glazer, as well as all our staff here at Impact 89FM. Tonight's show and all other exposure shows can be found on our website at www.impact89fm.org. I'm your host, Stephen Rich, and we'll see you again next week at 7 p.m. as usual. You've been listening to Impact Exposure 89FM. takes our country's final breath. I guess it takes... More than a king